I'm Will Davis. And I'm Leo Richards. And we're doing something a little bit different for this 30th episode of Eureka Nerd. Well, it's not quite going to be a Eureka Nerd episode. You might remember that wiki-walking podcast, which we've mentioned a couple of times. We're spinning it up into more of a full-time production. And to kind of celebrate the fact that that'll be taking off and bringing you lots of interesting conversations with interesting people for the next while, I hope. And having had some previews of some of those episodes, they are very interesting conversations. So, yeah, let's do one of those with us, and you can come along for the ride as well. So let's get started. Hello and welcome to Wikiwalking with me, Will Davis, and joining me for, I guess, the first episode of our triumphant return after a couple of months away, well, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Hello, my name's Leah Richards, I am Will's co-host on Eureka Nerd, his first podcast, and romantic partner and future wife, I guess. I could get used to hearing that, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we usually go with partner in lots of situations, because you get to leave people in suspense of... Oh, they've mentioned they have a partner. What gender comes into play there? Or is that like a legal arrangement? Are they bank robbers? Cowboys? Also, I don't want anyone to mistake me for a straight person if I can help it. A noble goal. And yeah, we are here. We've got Wikipedia, which is just about everything ever and a few things that never were. Now, I've done a couple of these before. So let's start with you, love. Do you have a Wikipedia page? I don't. I'm nowhere near notable enough for a Wikipedia page. I think I don't know even if anything I'm involved in has a Wikipedia page. Well, you've been to a university which almost certainly has a Wikipedia page. That's true. Maybe your employers have a Wikipedia page. I doubt it. We're very local. Some of the train stations we've travelled to almost certainly have Wikipedia <laughs> pages. There's Wikipedia pages for lots of stuff. And in fact, looking at the Wikipedia page for today, I'm going to let you take the first steps here. Predictably, my eyes drawn to the featured article today because it's about a dinosaur. I do love me some prehistoric megafauna. It's come up. So today's featured article is the article on Stegoceras, a genus of Pachycephalosaurid that lived in what is now North America during the late Cretaceous period. Borrows from lots of other kind of very familiar bits of dinosaurs. I don't know Stegoceras specifically, but it looks like other dinosaurs that I've met. I mean, it's a Pachycephalosaur... The name is Thickhead, I think, is how that would translate out of the Latin. We've got dome-headed here, Paki being round, like elephants. I thought Paki meant thick, as in pachyderm, thick-skinned. That's what it is, so it's not just round boys with big trunks. No, it's big boys with thick skins, or in this case, boys of a fairly small size. Actually, these guys look to be... I'm not sure about small, two to two and a half metres long. Yeah, long. When they're upright, they're about sort of hip height with the, the little human model they've got in the comparative image. They're not huge, by, especially by dinosaur standards. They're there were small. some very extreme dinosaurs. There were some pretty extreme dinosaurs. I'd watch that show, Extreme <laughs> Dinosaurs. My dad always used to say, it's extreme as long as you have to wear a helmet, and since they have a helmet built in... What else can you do with extremely wearing a helmet? Ironing. 
That was definitely a thing, I remember, yeah. People doing all like the size of mountains and yep. all surfing and stuff. Yep. But you don't have to wear a helmet to surf. You don't have to wear a helmet to surf, but that's maybe because you're more likely to do yourself serious soft tissue or like spinal damage falling off a surfboard than you are to bang your head on anything. There's not a lot in a nice bit of open sea to bang your head on, except your own surfboard, which hopefully you're on top of. It was definitely something which I felt watching a lot of the X Games growing up that you'd have people doing, you know, amazing flips and tricks on the BMX and skateboarding ramps. And even then they started bringing in the dirt bike stuff and things got extreme there. When they started getting the cars involved doing dirt rally, I thought, hey, that's, I'm not sure I'm like appreciating how much this has taken on new sports. But the surfing throughout, I always thought, that's not as extreme. Like going very fast down a tube of water is extreme, but the tricks that they were trying to score, like someone might turn around on the board, and after you've seen Tony Hawk's spin his entire body and board round like 17,000 times, it's it just doesn't scale to me. I guess it's difficult on a surfboard to have the same sort of momentum as you'd get on like a skateboard or a snowboard. Having just watched the Winter Olympics, we've seen that snowboards can pick up an awful lot of momentum. And do an awful lot of damage if you fall off them. Ooh, yeah. Some of those wipeouts were pretty galling. Yeah, on the snowboard cross, that guy who got up and finished the race, and then it was like, you cracked your fifth cervical vertebra. Time to go back to Austria. The broken neck. So yeah, I mean, there's extreme, and then there's extreme. Got a lot of stuff about the bones here, and like really nice pictures of uh, some skulls. And even CT images from a juvenile flat-headed AMNH5450 ornatothallus with sections to the right so bring some modern technology into play for figuring out what was going on inside these thick-headed boys as with lots of dinosaurs some weird uh, misinterpretations of the bones over the years well once you get past the fact that they were put there by the devil to trick us all then yes of course let's see what controversy has there been got a lot of discussion about species that were named and then turned out to actually be an older species which is again very common with dinosaurs there's a lot of history for them to fit into and there's a lot of very well-known examples of bones being identified as new species and then people changing their minds about that i mean the uh the brontosaurus is like the most famous example i forget where have they rebuilt Dippy the Diplodocus. Was... I don't remember. Should we try and find it? Tell what, if you scroll on down through to a dinosaur hub, let's see if we can find some Diplodoci down here. There's literally a subtitle here that's just dome function. What is the dome function? It has been interpreted as a weapon used in intraspecific combat, a sexual display structure, or a means for species recognition. I mean, that sounds a lot like what humans do with their heads, I guess? You see, lads out of a night, head-butting each other, trying to woo the ladies with their head and head ornaments. We're not as such built for that, though. Head-butting each other tends to end in, like, concussions. You know how boxers get kind of weird in later life? It's because they spend a lot of time being punched in their head. If only they use them for sexual function instead. Like competitive peacocking, you get into the ring and you've just got to make the shiniest nest or something. Just rub your head on your lady. <laughs> that is a different podcast. 
That would maybe be a good one, the Weird Animals X podcast. I can't be the first person to have thought of that. We know multiple people who'd be so into it, though. I think we know multiple people who are probably already doing that. If they're not, we should get them started. On the podcast? Yes. The podcast about weird sex. Okay. I'm sure they're all capable of finding the weird sex they want of their own accord. (laughs) They're all (laughs) grown-ups. They've all got the internet. Okay, so let's see. We've got down here at the bottom external links. Marginocephalia, Pachycephalosauria, and Ceratopsia. Pachycephalosauria as their own thing. Ceratopsia, Ceratopsidae, Ornothischians, Ceratopsians, Pachycephalosaurs. I'm pretty sure sauropods are not Ornithischia, so we should probably go back as far as Dinosauria. Okay. Yeah, that's to do with the hips, isn't it? Yes, bird-hipped or lizard-hipped. I can't remember what the word for the lizard-hips ones are. Hang on. Saurischia are the lizard-hips, so Sauropodomorpha, which is where we'll find our real giants. I spent so much time reading about dinosaurs when I was a kid. It seems like one of those things that kids get to do, which grown-ups don't in a lot of ways. It does Well, it, it's a phase that lots of kids go through. But also, people don't necessarily seem to retain it. Mm, it's up there with Egyptology. That you're just allowed to have this historical fixation as a child that, yeah, this kid is just going to know as much as some scholars about the succession of pharaohs or the order of dinosaur clades. And then they, they don't teach about it anymore. They just kind of box it up and you have to get on with regular school stuff. I mean, is there any school in the U- any primary school in the UK that didn't do Egypt as the topic for a term at some point? I remember our history classes in years three and four and five was basically Romans, Vikings, Romans, Vikings, Egypt, Greece. No, we didn't do much Greek stuff. We definitely did some Greek stuff. We did Egypt, we did the Victorians. Um, oh, World War Two! Every summer, World War Two. Ugh. Luckily, we didn't have to cover that in much great detail until we were in secondary school, but like, we took up half of a year just doing World War Two. That it sounds don't... light by my experience. I don't feel like it's necessarily the best way of engaging kids in history as a subject. Mm. Like, it might appear to be the most immediately relevant, but I think it's the story of World War Two that British schools really want to get across of, you know, the triumph of English over global domination otherwise and, you know, lots of battles and the unique English familial perspective that a lot of people would have of, oh yeah, I remember my granddad talking about the Blitz and ration books and I, maybe it's this generation going forwards have lost that immediate connection. It's interesting that you mention like the Blitz and Russian books because obviously that's what the experience in Britain was of the war, but it's not what it was about. It's very much like, not what it was about. I didn't find out until I was 19 that my grandfather was in a prisoner of war camp. Italian living in Wales and war breaks out like, right, everyone from Italy, we're not sure what to make of you right now, so get on the boat. And like, you know, the, the war was over sort of fascism and genocide and i don't feel like that's so much i don't feel like that's covered as much as it should be because otherwise people would be angrier about stuff like 
the Prime Minister cozying up to... Fascists and those committing genocide? Yeah. Yeah, it kind of just became about, you know, fighting Hitler and the Germans, and they became very much this kind of caricature, and that has lingered for, what, 60 years now? And it's effective to turn somebody into a caricature if you want to delegitimize them, if you want to help people oppose them, mm. but it doesn't it doesn't help people identify it in other people around them when they're kind of buying into that sort of thing. If you're like, oh, well, no, if you're a Nazi, you're just super duper duper evil. You're not like someone who works in IT and just like really hates the Jews. Yeah, it's too distant from the people who exist today because they are out there. If you can just dismiss the attitude as the attitude of a monster, it makes it harder to see it in the actual human beings who are around you. Speaking of monsters. <laughs> yes, we're on uh, Sauropodomorpha. I, I remember quite intensely the end of the walking, the first episode of Walking with Dinosaurs where the Platiosaurus come along. They're like prosauropods. So they're still not completely quadrupedal. And they're only the size of one bus rather than four. <laughs> I mean, we've got the Walking with Dinosaurs book just across the living room from us where we're recording this now. It's, it's, I love that book. It's fantastic. The illustrations are in it are so good. We recently rewatched the TV show, the first episode of the TV show, and some of those graphics didn't hold up so well in motion. Yeah, they still look pretty good in the the still in images in the book, but they don't hold up so well on TV. I think it's time they remake it, honestly. I mean, they remake everything. Exactly. And we know so much more about the animals that we were looking at in the show. Just the computer graphics and stuff have come so far. I've scrolled down here on the Sauropodomorph page to a picture of some skulls of Several sauropodomorphs to show, you know, what matches up and what lines up where. A little bit of comparative paleontology. Yeah. And see what looks like a, maybe a brachiosaur skull. There's some very familiar skulls right here in the middle. K, for example. Like, I can yeah, I put think some that's, flesh on that pretty quickly. I think that's the brachiosaur, isn't it? And S could be a horse. If I didn't know what a horse skull looks like, then I'd agree with you. <laughs> But I do know what horse skulls look like, and they've actually got a lot less snout. You know how the, end, the horse's actual noses are really soft and squishy? Not, I've not squished a horse's nose. It's, there's, no, there's no bone, like, directly underneath the nose. Okay. So where that one's uh, kind of nostril ends? What, the, the black bone running along the top there? The, yeah. Um, where that like nostril hole is mm -hmm. is basically where the actual bone of a horse's nose would end and then there'd be like a little like a, like in your own nose a little spike okay down and the rest of it's just flesh what do the teeth plug into then it's it's just kind of cut away I thought the teeth went so very far forward kind of teeth yeah there's teeth at the front but the actual nose part is open in the skull because it's all soft tissue in there. Mm. Whereas in these guys, they've actually got bony noses. Because they haven't got a nose so much as like a face with nostrils in. I just saw it and saw the teeth out front and a big bridally space there and thought, huh, horse shape. 
we should uh, maybe try and get over to Horsebones because I mean that's been a, a subject of discussion that's come up a few times, isn't it? They're I can't like... believe that this. It took what, like, seven thousand years of human civilization for all of the horse bonology to come out in the last month. I think it's just that some popular people noticed how weird horse anatomy is and decided to tell people about it. So now people are like, they run on their fingers. What? And I guess I was also born out from having an internet space which enabled people to look at horses and point at them and go, "That's a ghost." Or some kind of extra-dimensional, extra-planar being, which is aware of too much and not enough by far. Okay, so uh, never mind trying to find where Dippy is right now. I've just found on one of these uh, phylogeny diagrams a species called Panty Draco, and I can't. <laughs> Maybe it's Welsh. It literally is Welsh. Yay! I got one right! Panty is short for pant e finon, signifying finon. hollow finon, is it? Mm-hmm. I think panty finon. Signifying hollow of the spring or well in Welsh, referring to the quarry at Bonvilston in South Wales where it was found. I can't believe it was actually Welsh. It is based on a partial juvenile skeleton once thought to belong to Thecodontosaurus. Thecodontosaurus is the local dinosaur. Yes. They've yes, we saw one. it up at the museum. Yeah, they've got one in the in the museum called Theo. <laughs> it's a good name too. Thecodontosaurus. It's an appropriate name. I mean, they called the Pliosaur Doris, which I think is very good. What were the uh, names that were put up on the survey? I'm pretty sure there was a Leo on there. Yeah, and then Doris. Doris just works. Yeah, well, if we have a look at the Thecodontosaur page, it might get us to Bristol Museum exhibit. There is indeed the Bristol Dinosaur Project. And a picture of Bob Nichols sculpting the model of Theo that lives at Bristol Museum. There he is. That's the fella. It's, you know, he's had some work done since. It's Yeah, he's had a lot of colour and stuff. But out of all of the projects that run around Bristol, I know we've got the Bristol Wood Project, the Bristol Bike Project, Bristol Drugs Project. Sofa Project. Sofa Project. This is a, there's a project for everything. And for dinosaurs. I love this city. It's a good city to be. <laughs> what have you got? We've got bikes and sofas and dinosaurs. There's your evening sorted. <laughs> Sit um, down, have a pedal. I'm kind of surprised there isn't a Bristol hipster cafe project because we're all so lousy with those. There's been a Bristol bike cafe. There's been a Bristol sofa cafe, I suppose, in the birdhouse. It was all lots of old sofas and armchairs could there be a bristol dinosaur cafe this is my new life plan a dream has awakened in you like (laughs) i love a niche museum and i love a cup of tea i can be both of those so the tables would have fossils like those fossil relief things in them not reliefs, because that's difficult to, like, put stuff on. Under glass. Nah. Nah. Too breakable. Just diagrams with, like, iso-what's-it lines. Like, contour lines. The site where a particular specimen was found, and it's all nicely annotated, so you can be like, oh, here is the Pachycephalosaurus. I have a local map for all the different finds as well. Yep. There's so many chances for people to go fossiling around, like, uh, down to, I think it's West Quantic's Head? 
Quantix or something where there apparently is a beach filled with lots of little fossils. People can bring them back and stick them up on the wall or take a picture with them and their fossil. And if you go a little bit further south down to Lyme Regis and the the Jurassic Coast in Dorset, there's... Well, the Jurassic Coast. So much. Okay, so the podcast is cancelled. We're going fossiling. (laughs) I found a bunch of ammonites at Lyme. It's pretty good. Ammonite slice coasters. Nice. To be fair, my parents found a lot of ammonites in the garden when they dug the pond. And that mammoth tooth. No, the mammoth tooth was bought from somewhere, I think. That's the new dream. Everyone from the Bristol Dinosaur Project would definitely throw their weight behind it. Yeah, I bet. Kids would go mad for it. Grown-ups with kids would be happy just to kind of let them sit around and be, again, inspired and nerdish in the way that five-year-olds with a book are. Indeed, it's talking about the background of the Bristol Dinosaur Project here. It was discovered in 1834 and named in 1836. And then it was just sort of like people checked in on it occasionally. Yeah, so Thecodontosaurus antiquus, antiquus, from 1830 to 1870, 1900, 1990s. Yeah, it's just just been there. Just been hanging out. And then finally, people realised that it was a good way to try and engage maybe local kids in the excitement of discovering things as a scientist. How do you think that meeting went? Of a bunch of people sat round saying, we want to get the kids engaged in local history. And someone goes, well, we've got this dinosaur. Do you think that might work? Everyone like, kids love dinosaurs. Children obsessed with dinosaurs. All of us here, also quite into dinosaurs. How did we not think of this sooner? Or did he just find it or something? No, we've had it for the last 170 years. Well, let's get on with it then. Visits to hundreds of schools in Bristol, North Somerset, Bath and North East Somerset. Appearances at Bristol Festival of Nature, at Bristol, now we the Curious, Cheltenham Science Festival, Arnisfail Cemetery, oh, that would be a good space to explore some dinosaur bones, on top of people bones. Yeah, in the presence of many, many people bones. Oh, the psychic energies there would be a powerful force. I mean, most graveyards are kept fairly calm. It's, you know, a place where people are put to rest. It's Yeah, not a... and then you put a dinosaur on top. Have you ever <laughs> been asleep and then had a dinosaur on top of you? Your rest is very shortly ended. I've never been dead and had a dinosaur on top of me, so I can't speak to that experience. Are fossilizations an option for burials yet? I know you can get yourself turned into gems and blasted into space, but can you be fossilized? I don't think it's reliable enough. Like, we don't exactly know the mechanisms by which some things fossilize and other things don't. What if they were to cast your bones in steel or something? Become a robot fossil? I mean, I know that's your ambition. Well, that's just to become a robot. (laughs) And not ambition... Backup plan. In case we don't solve this whole immortality thing, get yourself ported into a robot body and explore space with an internal Spotify playlist. I think being downloaded into a robot body is how we're going to get into immortality. I don't think there's a way to do it in the flesh vessel. Mm, I'll have to take that up with altered carbon. What is it they call them in that? Sleeves. Gross. Yeah. Or what was it, that one film with Bruce Willis? 
I mean, that one film with Bruce Willis is done a bunch. There's one specifically about piloting remote bodies. I mean, the thing that came to mind for me was being John Malkovich. Doesn't have Bruce Willis, but it does have a bald man, so that's a start. And people living forever by inhabiting other bodies. Yeah. I've not seen that film in a very long time. It's a super weird movie. I wonder if it holds up still, that you go back and you watch it and you've got John Cusack hobbling around in a half-tall office. It doesn't stop being weird. Hmm. I mean, it's a few years since I've watched it, but I, you know, I watched it as a grown person with opinions and like enjoyed it whilst also being really spooked. But also the extent of the celebrity cameo being dragged out into the entire film of being John Malkovich. Like if we watched being John Malkovich and then a lot of films starring John Malkovich which have come out since, like he's made some interesting career choices. Has he been inhabited by whatever ghost? No, I think he was always inhabited by John Malkovich. That's that's probably enough John Malkovich. <laughs> That's probably enough John Malkovich for any one body to hold. In terms of fossilization, though, did you hear about that film he made that's not going to be released for a hundred years? I didn't, but that sounds kind of par for the course, honestly. Yeah, it's just been locked in a vault, and it's not going to be released whilst anyone alive to hear about it today is ever going to get a chance to see it. That is kind of what they did with The Clockwork Orange. There was outcry, and it was banned, and then the director was like, let's just put it away. <laughs> put it in the Disney vault. Shelve it up next to Little Mermaid. Yeah, it was just put away for a bit, and then... I think uh, Samuel Clements's diary said you to come out soon under a similar 100-year ban. Well, 100-year delay. I don't know who that is. Mark Twain. Okay. No, no, I'll have to look at modern fossils some other time. Got all the stuff that Bristol Dinosaur Project have been up to. <laughs> well, I've clicked through to the Museum and Art Gallery, which is... Uh, we do go and have a wander around periodically. Yeah, what was the last thing we went to go see there? Was it the Mayan thing? No, I think it would have been Doris the Pleasaur. Yeah. And then I took my mum and we saw that girl in the awesome trailer bite hat that she'd knit herself. <laughs> which mum and I were immediately like sidling over going, that's a really good hat. We like your hat. Mum in fact went, who knit you that wonderful hat? And she went, I knit it. And we both went, ah! <gasps> Because we know how to show appreciation for people's handmade work. Everyone's just kind of then circling around her, demanding the Ravelry link, or... Yeah, she told us where to find it. Okay, that's If something. you search Trailer by a Hat on Ravelry, it'll come up. She'd adapted it so that it was... Uh, the actual fossil pattern was in a different colour, so that it stood out even more. Which <laughs> yeah. is very clever. That is exactly as nerdy as I'd hope any interaction in the Bristol Museum to be. I kind of want to see if we can get through to the Natural History Museum in London. Well, there should be some network of museums, surely. Oh, Natural History Museums in England. I reckon that'll take us through. Okay, that's right um, down here at the bottom. But... Because then we'll be able to find out where Dippy the Diplodocus has been moved to and possibly talk about my very favourite prehistoric megafauna. Natural History Museums in England, was it? Yes. Well, let's see, they've got some very interestingly named ones, like Quex Park. We want Natural History Museum, London. Oh, are we not going to take the Victor Wind Museum of Curiosities, Fine Art and Natural History? Oh, God, no, but we need to find out where Dippy lives now. Natural History Museum, London, here we come. I don't think I've been there in, gosh, 15 years now. 
Yeah, I haven't been there since I was at school. Um, and we we only got to spend the morning there and then spent the afternoon of the same day at the science museum. Hmm. I didn't find the science museum anywhere near as interesting. I'm sure they've done a lot since to make it more. I'd hope so, because it seemed kind of bleak after going through the Natural History Museum where there's just so much and even the architecture is all mm. thematic i mean they've got pterosaurs on the windowsills what's not to love <laughs> megabus will drive right past the natural history museum the national express heading to victoria will roll right past it and i look out and i see it and i think that's the right building for it to be in okay so dippy is on tour oh she's currently and until the 7th of may 2018 at dorset county museum We'll be in Ulster from September 2018 to January 2019. There's also going to be a stop at Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery, which might be quite a good opportunity for us to go visit. I've clicked through to the actual page for Diplodocus here, not to Dippy. And I circle back around to meet you. If you go through major specimens, she's uh, right <laughs> at the top. One day I would like to be referred to as a major specimen. Maybe you could volunteer to be the type specimen for the human race. There's a whole story about... I think it was Richard Owen, the dinosaur hunter, who volunteered, and then when he died, they discovered that his bones were absolutely riddled with syphilis. Yikes. So they didn't use him in the end. <laughs> I like that the see also at the bottom of Dippy's article, there's Archie the squid and Sophie the stegosaurus. <laughs> Certain naming conventions must be obeyed. So which are we heading to? Squid? Yeah, I'm going to like dip back to the Natural History Museum in a bit, because there's something else I wanted to... Uh... The illustrations they always put up for things like the giant squid and titanic squid, I think do not enough justice to the length of the legs, because you can see them all stretched out from tip of the head down, and then back up again, and then back out, and they look pretty long. But to see all of those floating in the water, free and mobile, is a whole other experience. I mean, there's no wonder there were legends about them. In 2004, researchers took the first images of a live giant squid. July 2012, a live adult was first filmed in its habitat off Chichijima. And that's not long ago. People have been looking in the water for a very long time and only got a picture within the last couple of years, really. I mean, because they just sort of wash up sometimes mm. and then everyone's like blimey that's big four meters 13 foot without its two feeding tentacles it's kind of horrifying and yeah the uh timeline here featuring some visual representations one on the right here of electon attempts to capture a giant squid in 1861 the fact that it's the size of the boat in this picture that's not really too big a stretch of the imagination and Archie is also a resident at the Natural History Museum. He's eight metres long, was caught near the Falklands in 2004, and isn't sadly on general display, but is stored in a large tank in a basement. I have heard there is a special tour you can do by request to go and see some of the undisplayable items in the Natural History Museum. I would love to do that, to be fair. Like all the samples that have to be kept in preservatives that they don't allow near human beings for very long, because otherwise your fingers start turning yellow and then dropping off or whatever. Yeah. The illustrations I've got here for the exhibits in life galleries, like you start off looking at things like the 
Gyps Fulvus or Griffin Vulture. The Fennec Fox. And then, oh, yep, here's a skeleton of the Triceratops Horridus. The moving model of a T-Rex. And a young student. I hope they let her out every now and again. <laughs> it's not mentioned on the Wikipedia page, but my favourite thing at the Natural History Museum and my favourite prehistoric megafauna of all time is the Glyptodont, which was featured on Walking with Beasts. For anyone who's not aware of it, it's um, it's an armadillo the size of a car. <laughs> and there's something about that that just charms the pants off me. There were definitely some in at least one of the Ice Age films. Yeah, I think I remember seeing that in trailers or clips. But it's that it has such a direct living analogue today in armadillos. But armadillos are awesome. kind of like, they're palm size. You can hold the belly of one yeah. in your hand. As opposed to a jeep. Kind of the size of a new beetle. Okay. Not like one of those, um, the new minis, which are like the mini Clubman DXL, which are just the size of a car. Yeah, they've ceased to be minis at this point. But yeah, I just love that it's someone like looked at a tortoise, which had already been invented at that point. (laughs) And was like, okay, let's do one that's hairy and warm and the size of a car. I sympathise. Weighs a literal ton. You don't sympathise with that part. You don't literally weigh a ton. I have slimmed down. (laughs) Something that's caught my eye on the Natural History Museum page, which I didn't know was so closely linked to your interests, is that a British fantasy author, China Mieville, based the plot of his 2010 novel Kraken and Anatomy around the theft of Archie from the museum's Darwin Centre by a mysterious squid cult. Oh yeah, that sounds right up your street. Mm -hmm. I've read not much else by China Mieville, but what I have read, I've enjoyed. What I've seen of him as a person has been compelling. A standout work for me has been City and the City, which is about a murder mystery in two towns which are overlaid upon each other in a kind of cultural geographic mashup. I've not read Kraken because I saw a summary of it once, and if we click through, we can see the same summary, I think. I don't think I really clocked that it was a. Well, it's described as a dark comedy. I think I took it maybe a bit too seriously. It says here, A dark comedy about a squid-worshipping cult and the end of the world. It takes the idea of the squid cult very seriously. I'm, like, really interested in reading this now. (laughs) Okay. I shan't spoil the thing that I heard about it then, which put me off initially picking it up, but I will add that to a wish list for (laughs) uh, any upcoming excuse for me to buy your present. It does mention Paddington, which is Ooh, yes. one of my favourite films of recent years. The people who made Paddington have been tapped to make a new adaptation of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Oh, Which hopefully will be less creepy than the Johnny Depp version. I mean, the Gene Wilder version was pretty creepy. There's creepy, and then there's Johnny Depp creepy. I don't necessarily find Johnny Depp creepy as much as pitiable these days. Like, well, the whole Tim Burton super pale, yeah, like, that look was weird. Yeah, and a lot of the child exit scenes were done in a really bloviated manner, like <laughs> real messed up, and that's saying something. There is in the see also section for the Natural History Museum. Keeper of Entomology, Natural History Museum. I'm interested as to why that's notable enough. Entomological academic position within the Natural History Museum London serves as the head of the Department of Entomology, 
originally a post ranked as assistant keeper to the keeper of zoology, known as the assistant keeper in charge of insects, but reorganisation in 1913 saw entomology get its own department. We've got a whole list of people who've taken the role. Imagine being in charge of the insect repository and the largest collection of insects, certainly in my knowledge, is a fairly heady position. Yeah, it's a pretty important role. Interestingly, they haven't listed the current incumbent. Yeah, you've got Andrew Polizek acting 2010 to 2012. Maybe they rolled it up into another position? Hmm. It's interesting to me that that one has got its own page, but none of the other jobs do. Maybe the assistant keepers in charge of insects and other keepers of entomology were just so remarkable in their own right. (laughs) Maybe they just have that many bugs. Maybe they just have that many bugs. I mean, we can we can find out. We can who, the most recent one who's still got a blue link is Quentin, Quentin Wheeler, Wheeler, who was in the job from two thousand and four to two thousand and six. This biographical article about an American hurdler is a stub. <laughs> I'm not sure this is the same man. Yeah, for American entomologist and college president, see Quentin D. Wheeler. I kind of want to stick around with Quentin David Wheeler. I can't believe they both have the middle initial of D as well. Oh, no. Olympic 1976 Olympic athlete finishing fourth behind Moses, Edwin Moses, in his debut at the international scene, had the misfortune of being one of the best 400-meter 400 400-meter 400 hurdlers in the world at the same time as Moses, attended Monmouth Regional High School, was inducted into the school's Hall of Fame in 1993. But Quentin Dwayne Wheeler, which is the name of the entomologist... Oh, not just entomologist, taxonomist, author, newspaper columnist, and founding director of the International Institute of Species Exploration. He's got around. And he's been around. He's been professor of entomology at Cornell and Arizona State Universities. Director of the Division of Environmental Biology at the National Science Foundation. And a picture of him with Spock. With a picture of Spock. Not with Spock, but with a picture of Spock. The author of approximately 150 scientific articles and six books, including What on Earth? 100 of our planet's most amazing new species. How many new species do you think are discovered a year? I don't know, but I know there's a lot still to be discovered. This came up recently in a uh, Twitter feed from a science communication outlet, and lots of people are saying, well, what do you mean discovered? Because every time I look back in my archives, I find one or two I've not noticed before. And I think the figure they put to it was about 20,000 a year. Yeah, that seems about right. And mostly they're things like insects and stuff that kind of do escape notice. New types of fern as well. There's a whole species of octopus that they thought they had only just discovered. Turns out they've had one in captivity for ages, but it was disguising itself as another octopus. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds like what an octopus (laughs) would do. That's, That's just... That's just what octopods are like. That's Yeah, that's the octopod thing to do. (laughs) <laughs> I do remember there being a, an exhibition to a, a remote rainforest-filled extinct volcano crater somewhere deep in South America or Central Africa where they found like a half dozen new mammal species and everyone was like, all at once? Because some mammals tend to be large and obvious. Some mammals can escape notice, but that many mammals all at once. And a bunch of them were like medium-sized. They were mm. sort of monkeyish there was like at least one monkey and a, a bat and that kind of thing i guess no one looked up 
there hadn't really there just hadn't been any scientists there yet. Like probably the locals were like, Oh yeah, that's one of those. We know them. But it hadn't been scientifically described. Ah, that's the bugger of it. Let's see. He was the president of the State University of New York College of Environmental Science and Forestry from 2013 to ongoing. No mention of his entomology-keeping experience. It is mentioned at the top. Aha. Uh-huh. Let's roll back up in to there. His, uh, in the sort of condensed CV they've got there. Ah, uh, yes. I'm kind of interested in the cyber taxonomy, but the page doesn't exist and I'm very disappointed. Or maybe the phylogenetic systematics beside it will be enough to kind of fill in the distance? Oh, he's had three species of beetles named in his honour. Tonerus wheelerai, Eliodes wheelerai, and Agathisium wheelerai. Nice. You know, like, at the the Chelsea Flower Show every year, David Austin Rose's launches their new cultivars and they're often named after notable people Mm -hmm. and it's considered quite an honor to have a rose named after you i know judy dench has got one but i think a beetle might be even better yeah the idea of something being animate and named after you is a bit more special than a plant which can just be you know cultivated i mean it's nice that someone's spent years over carefully selectively breeding this plant and they look at it and they go that's pretty i'm gonna name it after this person like that's that's quite nice it's nice but also there's that can be done with an intent to start with like i'm gonna make a plant for you and that's great and all but finding like this is the only bug of its kind that has ever been recorded so far this is the first of its bugs i want to name this creepy crawly after you the more i think about it now the less appealing it becomes I quite like a creepy crawly, so um, I'm fairly positive about the idea. Noted. Okay, that's concerning. <laughs> Maybe it's one of those things you can buy in W. H. Smith, like, oh, get a relaxing weekend for two with a tea break and some wine or a driving experience on Silverstone. Name a bug after your loved one. If it's not, it should be, but it might be more expensive than... Uh... You know, like, they do the name a star thing. Oh, yeah, like, uh, by a patch of the moon, yep. by a lordship and a lairdship in Scotland. Name a bug. That, I mean, if there's 20,000 species being discovered a year, like, being able to name a species feels like something you should be able to buy. I worry, then, if you auction them off, that you'd get things like Bugurides, Betfredii. And Bugurides, McDonaldsii. Like, there's a lot of people who throw a lot more money at that. I mean, I was thinking maybe more like Beetle McBeetleface or um, McBeetleii would be a good name. I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of like a genus name that I can just pull out. Genus Davis. Uh, right, we're looking at taxonomy. There's gonna, so much taxonomy. Yeah, I'm going to go back to mollusks and uh, see. When if did they we can... get to mollusks? Oh, I've still got Archie. The giant squid's page open. Okay. <laughs> Let me work my way back. Via Keeper of Entomology, Natural History Museum. Yeah, let's say you found a slug and you call it Helix Deesnutsii. <laughs> Please do that. <laughs> oh God, I'm just wheeling down all of this snail facts to try and catch up to where you were and 
Ew. <laughs> the uh, two peens love dart thing. Yeah, that's pretty much where I got to. Love yeah. darts. Here we are, the land snail Monocoides vicinius. If there ever was something to be called Desnutsii. Speaking of weird animal sex, as we were earlier, were snails, we, earlier? Uh, we did mention it earlier. You'll you'll find out in the playback. <laughs> when you're editing, you'll come across it and you'll be like, we were talking about weird animal sex. But yeah, snails are... Gross. Snails definitely do it kind of weird. There's definitely at least one kind of slug that like makes itself a really thick mucus that it can hang from yeah, they while they mate. Intertwine and tangle. But they're hermaphroditic as well, so they're just kind of bagging out who's going to get which gamete. Yeah, yeah, they do. There's, there's like a whole, like a lot of species have a sort of physical fight. They have a, a slimy wrestle to decide who's laying the eggs this time. <laughs> fight you for it. Which does remind me of that one species of parthenogenic lizards who basically have sex with each other and the individual who's bottoming then has like bigger, healthier eggs afterwards. And they basically take it in turns. Sure, yeah. Weird animal sex. Somebody's got to do it. I like that they specify in this article for snail that land snails that have only a very small shell that they cannot retract into are often called semi-slugs. Land gastropods whose shells are too small for them to retract into but not quite vestigial. Sometimes the shell is present but not visible because they're like... So I guess these count as transitionary fossils? Potentially. I mean, a partial shell has a lot of the advantages of a full shell without the, like, limited mobility disadvantage. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, it all depends on your lifestyle, how useful or not a full shell is to you. It's hard to question a snail. Like, you can't ask, and what led to... Your mobility choices will led to the semi-shell approach. I mean, especially since you'd have to, instead of interrogating the snail itself, interrogate the entire biological context of that snail and all its ancestors for the last hundred generations. Like I say, tricky. Yeah, evolution's very complicated. Don't doubt anyone tell you otherwise. Yeah. Me with a biology degree is going around telling people that biology is simple. A walk in the park. I'm not saying that you're saying it's simple. No, Brian Cox is, isn't he? I think he did learn a newfound respect for the discipline, but... Is that just because they paid him? It's because he actually had to learn some of it. It was like, oh, this is actually really hard. Turns out there's more to planet Earth than just me. And my weird sense of timing <laughs> him popping up at the start of the olympics i did feel was a little superfluous a little bit especially they just wanted someone to kind of wax poetic about forces so they got him in a church in a sunbeam going force acceleration toboggan i was going to suggest that he maybe should have asked marcus to sew toy but he's more of a mathematician than a physicist I should have got Brian Blessed, let's be completely honest. They should get Brian Blessed for basically everything. Doing the tube announcements. You're now approaching King's Cross! Yes. (laughs) 
Oh, please, dear Lord, let him do the announcements at Heathrow Terminal 2 International Arrivals. Welcome to England! I'm Brian! <laughs> I feel like, is that the king? I think he's the king. He's, he's the big man doing the shouting the first time we arrive in the country. I'm going to assume he's probably important. <laughs> I'd quite like it if it was the queen doing the announcements, though. Like, <laughs> welcome to one's realm. If you're wondering who I am, look at any of your money. Any of it at all. It's all mine. We've gone from dinosaurs. We've not really gone very far from dinosaurs. We kind of fell into a natural history hole pretty quickly. You should have expected that. Yeah, Having is... seen that opening page, you should maybe have expected that we would end up in a natural history hole. It's kind of our jam. This is genuinely how we spend a lot of our evenings as it is, microphones or no. I'll tell you what, if we head back out of semi-slugs, uh-huh. back out of snails, uh-huh. back out of land snails, back out of mollusca, back out of giant squid, all the way back to the Natural History Museum, uh-huh. let's see if there's something here which we can learn from the museum that we didn't know or have an interest in before. Well, I've learned some facts about the film One of Our Dinosaurs is Missing. Is that from in fiction, or...? There is a thing about it in fiction. It's also mentioned on Dippy's article because she features in the film. Mm-hmm. I think I did catch a bit of one of our dinosaurs is missing once. It was on as like a half-term afternoon film or something. One of our dinosaurs is missing. It has a pretty charming cover. 1975 comedy set in the early 1920s. A funky fossil frolic. The more I look at this poster actually the more it starts to come undone yeah those vertebrae are very strange i was more concerned by the stereotype of a good old-fashioned chinaman sitting on top of this yeah there's that a lot of the accents are very bad um Mm -hmm. both of that character who obviously is played by a white person because that's what movies were like there's quite a few otherwise really strong classic films that have that sort of nonsense, like Breakfast at Tiffany's. Oh, yeah. A character that didn't even need to be awkwardly shoehorned into being a racial caricature. I mean, you could just have hired an actual Chinese person. It's literally that simple. Yeah, or that um, the murder mystery satire. Oh, yeah, Peter Sellers. That's the fellow, yes. In yellow face. Yeah. But the thing I learned from the Natural History Museum page is that there is one bit where the uh, the nannies who are in the film are hiding in the mouth of supposedly a blue whale and looking around besides its teeth. Except that obviously blue whales don't have teeth because they're baleen whales. Yes, and in fact the blue whale that's in there wasn't there at the time. They had to build a very special prop. So yes, here we have... So shall I do this as Brian Blessed? Oh dear. Hattie and Emily enlist other nannies to help them search. They hide in the mouth of the blue whale display until after closing time and then begin looking over the skeleton of an Apatosaurus! Referred to in the film as a Brontosaurus, a synonym that was popular at the time. Which is weird, because it's not a synonym. It was the name of a dinosaur which was later identified to have actually been a patasaurus all along. (laughs) (coughs) 
Is that genuinely just a labeling mistake, do you think? No, they, they'd found some bones and they were like, this is definitely a new dinosaur. I'm going to call it Brontosaurus. And everyone was like, great, Brontosaurus, that's catchy. That's easier to say than Pachycephalosaurus or Parasaurolophus. You can hardly blame them. So Brontosaurus became a very, very popular dinosaur. And then later someone took another look at the specimens and were like, uh, I think this actually is a Patasaurus. This is the same animal as we'd already identified as a Patasaurus. And because we'd called it a Patasaurus first, it has to be a Patasaurus now because that's the rules. A Patasaurus for life. A Patasaurus. Yeah, well, if someone's named it first, that one takes precedence. Hmm. That's how that works. You can blame it on Carl Linnaeus all you like, but oh, I will. He's I will long absolutely since blame dead. anything on Carl Linnaeus. <laughs> I think that might have been my best joke in that um, one show offset, the one that just ended with "suck it, Carl Linnaeus." <laughs> Carl Linnaeus can do one. Yeah. <laughs> Realizing that Lord Southmere is now in danger, Hattie organizes a rescue. Hattie and her team of nanny, her team of nannies, sure, invade the Chinese restaurant. Oh no. <laughs> I'm gonna stop reading that out loud because it does feel wrong. Oh God, no! It's it's so much worse than you think it is. Escaping from China with a microfilm of the formula for the mysterious Lotus X, Lord Edward Southmere, a Queen's messenger, is chased by a group of Chinese spies. He hides the microfilm amongst the bones of the dinosaur. The Chinese spies steal the dinosaur in order to try and retrieve the microfilm, which, by the way, Lord Southmere nicked off them. Like, he stole that. Okay, so it's in keeping with the rest of British history. They're trying to get it back. Yeah, things in museums mostly stolen. Look at these stolen. gigantic pillars. We took them from Iraq two centuries ago and haven't given them back since. The nannies also fail to find the microfilm on the skeleton. The nannies that there are. The nannies that are in it, because Lord Southmere bumps into his old nanny, Hetty. Sure. Do you want to know what Lotus X is, the mysterious formula? Having read down, I already know, but say it all the same. It is a recipe for wonton soup. Salt and crab meat. God knows why it appeared important enough at any point for a spy to try and pinch it. Yeah, what, at what point does a cultural attaché have to try and reclaim a lost recipe for wonton soup? When you can buy that, like that's in books, you can just look that up in a cookbook <laughs> at any second. Oh, here's another good fact. Mm -hmm. The Diplodocus skeleton model was later used in Star Wars A New Hope in the opening scenes in the Tunisian desert. Oh, neat. Very good, a very good fact. There's still an official website for one of our dinosaurs is missing. There's still. Someone set it up long after the film was made. Oh yeah, but how many Disney films have come out in the interceding time that should surely have just taken up more website space than one of our dinosaurs is missing? Ooh. Here we are. Movies. Dis oh no, it redirects to Disney.co.uk. Surprise, surprise. The website is down. It's defunct. I feel like that's a suitable dead end to wrap up our wiki walk on we've chased squids and museums and diplodoci into a disney vault never to be seen again until anyone goes to a museum gone from dinosaurs all the way back to dinosaurs you have a type i've got many types you are consistent in your hobbies if nothing else i'm really not are we talking about the same person you're consistent in your dino hobbies i mean i guess once a special interest always a special interest 
So thank you very much for joining us on this walk. If you want to get in touch on the Eureka Nerd end of things, and you can find us both at www.eurekanerd.com. If anyone else wants to find you specifically, is there anywhere that they should be looking? Any way that they can get in touch? Uh, via the Eureka Nerd channels of contact is probably the best place to be. And if anyone wants to send word to wikiwalking underscore podcast on Twitter or wikiwalkingpodcast at gmail.com for anything else, then I suppose we'll be there as well. So that's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.